Good morning. Christianity has spread across sub-Saharan Africa at an incredible rate. There's tremendous growth in every denomination and form of Christianity all throughout sub-Saharan Africa. But sadly, the most dominant and pervasive strain of Christianity is the prosperity gospel. American preachers have exported the worst of our theology, teaching as truth what is actually lies, teaching the third world that God wants them to have health and wealth here and now in this life. If they don't have health and wealth, then they need to work harder, pray more, and give more money. The gospel, the good news, is that you can be rich and successful and healthy now. Preachers get rich, congregations get poorer, and no one hears the gospel. The actually good news in the death and resurrection of Jesus providing forgiveness of sins is shoved aside for a counterfeit. In addition to this, there's another problem. In American institutionalized Christianity, whether that's denominations or non-denominational evangelical churches, Many of them are dismissing what the Bible says about ethics, how to actually live. We can call this progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity is attempting to redefine Christianity at its core, creating a version of Christianity where you don't actually have to obey Christ. These problems are not merely statistical. What about the progressive churches in our community? What about the people who you know who are claiming to be Christians while celebrating living in open sin? What about those who you know who think and believe that Christianity is their ticket to a healthy life, a wealthy life, a vocationally successful life? The churches that Peter was writing to were facing a similar trial to these. False teachers had arisen from within and began denying Jesus. They were living greedy, licentious lives. They were seducing new believers with their smart-sounding theological talk just to lead them into worldly, fleshly living. They were celebrating their sexual sin in broad daylight. Into that situation, Peter speaks. So listen as I read 2 Peter chapter 2. There were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways. And the way of truth will be maligned because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. Their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment... And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought the flood of the world of the ungodly, 
And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for as the, that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. Bold, arrogant people, they are not afraid to slander the glorious ones. However, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. But these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, slander what they do not understand, and in their destruction, they too will be destroyed. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. They are spots and blemishes, delighting in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. Children under a curse, they have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wicked wages, the wages of wickedness, but received a rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them, but... For by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. For if, having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated, the last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit. And a washed sow returns to wallowing in the mud. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. The main point of today's chapter is this. The Lord destroys false teachers and rescues the godly. The Lord destroys false teachers and rescues the godly. First, we'll look at Peter's own introduction, which takes place in verses 1 through three. So point one, introduction, the Lord destroys false teachers and rescues the godly. Peter states his whole case here briefly and then unpacks it in the verses to come. Just as in the Old Testament, there were false prophets among God's people and among the true prophets, Peter's saying there will be false teachers in the church. In fact, Jesus predicted this in Matthew 24, verse 11. Jesus says, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. 
It seems Peter is referring back to Jesus's prophecy to remind the churches that he's writing to that this, what is happening now, the arrival of these false teachers was expected. Three marks of false teachers that we begin to see in verses one through three that he'll unpack later. The three marks are arrogance, lust, and greed. And the cost of these false teachers is serious. Within the church, many will follow their depraved ways. Outside of the church, the way of truth will be maligned. Because of these false teachers, false teaching and false living, the way of the gospel is going to be maligned. And then the fate of false teachers, destruction. In these first three verses, the word destruction is used three times. Their teaching is destructive. Jesus will bring swift destruction on them, and then their condemnation is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. In other words, they aren't getting away with anything. Their condemnation hangs over them like a shadow. Their destruction is awake, ready to hit. So, false teachers are arrogant, lustful, and greedy, and their destruction is certain. But as we start, it's important for us to get our heads around Peter's audience and Peter's aim. What's he trying to do with this chapter? See, he's not speaking to the false teachers directly. He's speaking to the rest of the church. He's warning the righteous about the wickedness of these false teachers. And this is a really dark chapter. But if you were living in one of these churches that Peter is writing to, I think this chapter would seem like a a bright beam from a flashlight, shining with moral clarity in the darkness that this church has been thrown into. You know, there is a, a category of love that speaks the truth about bad things. The scenario, someone discloses to you something awful that someone has done to them. Which is a more loving response? That's really unfortunate. I'm sure they met well, but I can see how that was painful for you. Or, that's terrible. That's a sin against you, and you are an image bearer of God. That is a sin against a holy God, what has been done for you. It's not okay. What has been done to you is indeed wicked, which is a more loving response to the person who's suffered great evil. For someone who has suffered evil, it is loving for you to identify it as evil. And when our culture is evil, there is a loving response for us as Christians to name the evil. The voice that speaks with moral clarity Amidst the chaos of immorality is a loving voice. Church, don't give away your voice to the moral lies of our culture. We are called to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Romans 12, 9 says, detest evil, cling to what is good. And that's what Peter's doing in this chapter. By naming these false teachers as evil, he's encouraging 
the church to detest their evil and to hold fast to the good of Jesus. So hold tight, buckle up. This morning, we were going to be walking through and looking at evil. We're going to be looking at five statements about false teachers as we walk through the rest of the chapter. And as I'm walking through it, you're going to notice I'm skipping the hopeful bits. And you're right. I'm saving those for the end. Uh, So point two of the sermon, five statements about false teachers. Number one, their destruction is certain. This covers verses five to the beginning of verse 10. This paragraph is an argument for why the destruction of false teachers is certain. He's building these three Old Testament examples that serve as arguments from the lesser to the greater. If God did that, then certainly he'll do this. So the three building blocks of his argument are are first, if sinning angels will be judged. He talks about that in in verse 4. Now, I think what he's referring to here is, is not the original fall of angels, but actually the incident in the beginning of Genesis 6, where fallen angels came and had sexual relations with women. And so this serves as an Old Testament example of God bringing judgment for sexual sin. And then, second if, if God did not spare the ancient world, but sent the flood, that's in verse 6, we see this story in Genesis 6 through 9. Where in Genesis 6, God saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. What was God going to do when his creation had gone this far off the rails? It says, then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky. For I regret that I made them. And God did. He sent the flood that destroyed the world. Humans and animals destroyed by water. So this is an Old Testament example of a global judgment for sin. And then the third example, if God reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ash and condemned them to extinction. This is what Scott just read for us. Just before where we, were, we read in Genesis 18, God says, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. And then God sent two angels to the city, and in that story just revealed the extent of the wickedness of that place. This is an Old Testament example of God bringing judgment with fire for sexual sin that had become permissive, and pervasive within a culture. After three ifs, if fallen angels are judged, if ancient world is judged, if Sodom is judged, then you get to verse nine. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. Remember, God punishes evil. 
He did it then. He will certainly do it now. Even when it's sexual sin, even when it's global, whole world needing of judgment, even when it's an entire culture accepting that sin as good. A worldwide judgment day is coming. God will judge with fire. These false teachers will be among the condemned. And all the false teachers who have plagued the church for the last 2,000 years will be with them. Their doom is sure. So church, entrust your enemies to God. Those who do evil and celebrate it always appear like they're getting away with it, but we know better. God knows how to bring about his justice. He knows how to bring about redemption. Entrust your enemies to God, and all will be made right. Every wrong will be atoned for, either in hell or on the cross. So that is Peter's first statement about the false teachers, that their destruction is certain. Now his second statement, their arrogance is irrational. In verses 10 to 12, bold, arrogant people, they are not afraid to slander the glorious ones. However, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. But these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, slander what they do not understand, and in their destruction, they too will be destroyed. These false teachers are arrogant, and uh, they, we've seen their arrogance at the beginning, verse 2, about how they denied Jesus as their master. We see their arrogance here is that they are uh, slandering the glorious ones, which raises the question, who are the glorious ones? There's a couple of options. It's kind of a tough exegetical question, but the most likely is where most commentators land, is actually that the glorious ones is a reference to fallen angels. The false teachers are flippantly slandering demonic forces in ways that even like true angels, godly angels, wouldn't even do. Like this is their, their level of arrogance. One possibility is that they're so entrenched in their sin and so presuming on God's grace that they feel they can flirt with the demonic and not be affected. Their arrogance is irrational. They're acting like animals born to be hunted and killed like a buck waltzing onto the Melvin's property in the wrong time of year. These false teachers are waltzing right towards their enemies. Their enemies, both God and these, uh, these fallen angels. Their sin isn't merely intellectual. Uh, you see that this is, is, is something that is a false teaching. It's a bad doctrine. It's a bad theology. But as we're seeing this unfold, it's bad theology that then turns into and leads to bad living. There's false, they're false teachers, and they're living in ways that are uh, ungodly. So we need to be, be aware that theology matters for how we actually live. This is the negative example of, of how that, that plays out. And so part of your job as a church member is to guard us from false teachers. Guard one another. Guard yourself from these false teachers that might arise. Part of our job as shepherds who are called to protect 
the flock is to protect us from false teaching. So if we're trying to warn you of danger of a preacher or or a writer, uh, understand that we're doing our best to uphold this aspect of our job. Because bad theology leads to bad living, and the stakes are really high. That brings us to the third statement about false teachers that Peter makes, verses 13 through 16. Their lust and greed are gross. Peter is really pulling the mask off these guys. There's nothing alluring or enticing or attractive about them once Peter is done describing them. Verse 13, they will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. They are spots and blemishes, delighting in their deception while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed, children under a curse. They have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of wickedness, but received a rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. You see this this marked lust in them. They have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. Literally, what it says is their, their eyes are full of adulteresses, meaning every person they look at, they objectify as a potential adulteress. And they do not, they do this in broad daylight. They're not ashamed. They're not, uh, they don't have any pretense of hiding it. They're flaunting it. Does this sound familiar? You know, in our sex-obsessed culture, the Christian viewpoint is actually very refreshing. See, we view sex as a good gift from God to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage. It's a gift with boundaries. But we do not view sex as the chief aim or the foundation of our identity. Much like these false teachers, today you can find many people with adultery in their eyes, practicing the sin in broad daylight. And what's more, our culture has adopted this idea that sexual preference is the core of the individual's identity. We've taken sex away from being a gift with rules and turned it into the core of who you are and how you find all meaning in life. And what's the result? Unhappiness, relational destruction, and the Lord's judgment. And what's the answer? So much more hope than you think. Such good news, because you are more than your sexuality. You were created in the image of God. And that is an immensely good thing. And you have the opportunity to be at peace with your creator through the wonderful gift of Jesus's death for you. You can have life in Jesus's life. There is a hope for you that is deeper, more meaningful, an identity for you that is more fundamental than your sexuality. You can be united to Christ and become a child of God. Christian, we battle the lusts of the flesh. 
We know that temptations come at us from the world, from our own uh, hearts, and we battle and struggle against the fleeting pleasure of sin in order to hold on to the solid joy of knowing God. There are, are many important strategies in how we wage war against lust in our hearts. And one that Peter exemplifies here is that he shatters the alluring facade of lust, and he shows it for what it actually is. He shows us that lust is damnable, ugly, and stupid. So in your own heart, learn to picture your lust as the ugly sin that it really is. Learn to see the stupidity of it, like Balaam being rebuked by his own donkey. See the end of lust, becoming like these damnable false teachers facing God's wrath. And then, looking at your lust with clear flashlight, bright eyes, compare that to the solid joys of knowing Christ, the solid goodness of him. And let that be a weapon in your tool belt that you, that you wage war with against the lust that you battle as a Christian. You also see greed so clearly in these verses, don't you? These false teachers are exploiting the others in the church for their own gain, they seek out unstable people and seduce them into their lies and take their money. Wealth will promise you comfort and security and significance, but don't buy it. A life spent in pursuit of greed ends up in this ugly, damnable place. They will be paid back with harm for the harm that they have done. The most common false teaching today is probably the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel teaches that the true good news, the gospel, is your prosperity in this life. That can mean God will heal you. That can mean God will give you money. It can mean that God will give you success in your job or purpose in your job. That's what the central good news of, of, of the Bible is, according to prosperity gospel. And these result in three terrible things, three terrible results of the prosperity gospel. One, what ends up happening is you have Christians who have no actual gospel. They don't know that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins. They don't know that their chief problem is that they are sinners against a wrathful, angry God who, uh, who has provided a way to have peace with him. They don't think that's their central problem or that Christianity offers the central solution to that problem. So you have Christians who don't know the gospel. And second, you have those who, are, are, those who suffer are disparaged as unrighteous because of their suffering. If you had enough faith, wouldn't God have healed you? If you didn't get that raise, you must have some sin somewhere hidden within your life that you haven't repented of yet. I had a friend uh, who, 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 who came up in one of these prosperity gospel churches in Texas, and he was partially deaf, and he was regularly shunned, given the cold shoulder, considered as less godly than the rest of them because God had not healed his deafness. So his suffering then was weaponized against him. It's a terrible result, the prosperity gospel. And thirdly, greed is tolerated. See, if God is all about your earthly success, then the prosperity gospel preacher can flaunt his wealth because it's a sign of his godliness. And really, he's just playing right 
into these false teachers' game plan. There's no different 2,000 years ago. This is a destructive heresy that is maligning Christianity. It's a serious problem, and it needs a serious response. We need not be attracted to this evil, because it is evil. That brings us to our fourth statement about false teachers. Their freedom is enslavement. Their freedom is enslavement. Verse 17, these people are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them, but by uttering boastful empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who are living in error. The thirsty traveler trudges through the sand to reach the spring in the hot sun, only to find that the spring has no water. He sees a storm coming on the horizon, promising the water he so desperately longs for, only for it to blow through as a mist without forming a single drop of water to to wet his parched tongue. Such are the empty promises of false teachers. They sound sophisticated with their complex arguments, casting their bait into the waters of the church. Their bait is their sophistry, their their, their complex-sounding arguments, how smart they seem. And then the hook is their fleshly desires of debauchery. They see someone bite, they set the hook, and they reel him in, offering more and more freedom and delivering more and more slavery. It's a similar thing going on today with progressive Christianity. This isn't uh, political progressivism. This kind of Christianity spans the political spectrum with ostensibly good motives, motives to get people into the church. Um, progressive Christians redefine the ethics of Christianity. Re- say, say uh, with fancy-sounding arguments, they say that what the Bible says about sexuality is incorrect. The upfront issue is homosexuality. They argue that the Bible does not condemn homosexual marriage. And then any other onerous, feeling, ethical command in the Bible follows suit. This is a false teaching that deceives people trying to become Christians. They utter boastful, empty words as the bait They seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who are living in error. That's the hook. Beware of this false teaching, church. It's leading people away from God's salvation and into God's judgment. God's word in truth has far more hope to give than to leave people enslaved to their sin. And let's look at verse 19. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Since people are enslaved, to whatever defeats them. If somebody's offering you a temptation, understand that that influencer is enslaved, enslaved to a life of lust or greed, enslaved to sin. Don't be swept up into seeing it for less than what it is. It's just enslavement. If you're a Christian, then you are truly free. It's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive because what what I'm saying is you are a Christian and you have to obey these rules, these ethical commands of the Bible. So you'd think you'd be less free. But in reality, if you're a Christian, you are free 
because you can do good. You're free to follow Christ. You're free towards that which is good. In fact, you are a slave of Christ. You're following him and doing good and being able to be a good person. <laughs> That's what part of what the goodness of the gospel offers to you, to become righteous. And if you are not a Christian, then you are enslaved to unrighteousness. You're not free towards goodness. You follow your passions. You follow the desires of your flesh. And that is its own kind of enslavement. And so the fifth statement that Peter gives us about false teachers is that their natures are unchanged. There's a really uncomfortable thing about this whole passage. The uncomfortable thing, if it wasn't uncomfortable enough already, is that these false teachers are in the church. In verse 2, they've denied the master who bought them. Verse 13, they're feasting with others in the church. Verse 15, they've abandoned the straight path, so apparently they were on it. How do we think about this? Are these Christians? Let's read 20 through 22. For if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated, the last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. This happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit and a washed so returns to wallowing in the mud. This passage is right in the middle of a debate among Christians over if a Christian can lose their salvation. It appears so in this passage, just as it appeared so in these churches that Peter was writing to. These people were part of the church, and then now they're these terrible false teachers. So what do we do with this? Well, understand that Peter told us, even in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So we want to try to figure out how, what, what's in Peter's mind here. How does Peter think about this? Because we believe that, you know, Peter's a rational writer and that the Bible is inspired. It's a rational book. So you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed. So... Our passage in, in, in 2 Peter 2 is speaking in a really normal way on like the human side of the equation, the world side of the equation of salvation. It's speaking experientially to churches who are experiencing a real trial. People had shown signs of being Christians. They were part of the church, and then they'd shown signs of not being a Christian. Then they were clearly not uh, able to be part of the church. So this would be really shaky for a church, really concerning. And maybe you've had similarly concerning and shaking kind of experiences. I know I have. I spent a year uh, as a missionary on a missions team in Jordan uh, with some other guys who were doing evangelism, learning Arabic together. And uh, after I came home, I learned that one of my teammates, who was my fellow missionary, had returned to his home country and abandoned Christ. He's now an atheist. Doesn't believe anything. And I was completely blindsided by that. Nothing in my relationship with him makes sense of that. It's a shocking experience. It's a shaky experience. It's disorienting. 
And it it raises for us unsettling questions, doesn't it? And beneath the unsettling questions are questions about God and his relationship and his goodness, right? So I'm asking myself, they're probably asking themselves, I, I imagine you've had experiences where you're asking yourself, was he ever really a Christian? Was he never a Christian at all? What? Which brings the question here, am I really a Christian? Or, or I ask, did Jesus abandon him? And then that obviously that brings me to the question, will Jesus abandon me? And then was, is he still a Christian now? And then that asks the question, well, do I have to obey Christ? You see, Peter's speaking into this scenario. And he says, because of how they have departed from the truth, it seems more likely, more, more unlikely now that they will return to it. If you were just telling them the gospel for the first time, it seemed more likely that they'd become a Christian than now that they have tasted of the, 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 the goodness of Christianity, apparently, and have abandoned it. It's worse for them now, having been a part of the church and then to walk away. It seems that they're further from believing the gospel than ever before. Peter answers the question about their true nature, I think, in the last verse with those two proverbs that he shares. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a washed sow returns to wallowing in the mud. You can wash a pig, but because it's a pig, he'll return to wallowing in the mud. You can feed a dog refined food, but because he's a dog, he'll still return to his own vomit. The problem remains, pigs have pig natures and dogs have dog natures. External changes won't last. Their behavior may change for a time, but eventually their natures will be revealed again uh, in their actions. In other words, someone who has not been regenerated, born again, made new by the blood of Christ, can clean up for a little while. But eventually, he'll return to wallow in the mud. He may stay away from the filth of the world for a little while, but eventually he will return to it like a dog returning to his vomit. Dogs will be dogs, enemies of God, even if they've if they've been part of the church, baptized as members, enemies of God will reveal themselves to be enemies of God and they will be condemned. You know, as Christians have debated this question, right, of of can Christians lose their salvation, something that all Christian traditions agree with, and that's really the thrust of the passage here is this, is that Christians must persevere. You must not abandon Christ. You must not give yourself over to the ways of the world. Do not abandon Christ or else there will be hell to pay. And here's the good news. It's an effective warning to Christians. It's a real threat, but it remains hypothetical to those who have been reborn. If you fear God, the threat will land on soft hearts and you will repent of your sin and turn to Christ. If any of you are on the verge of bankrupting your faith, don't do it. This is not a game. God's warnings are not idle. If the glories of heaven are not enough to entice you, let the horrors of hell dissuade you. Run back to Christ. 
he will embrace you with open arms. That brings us to our third point. The Lord rescues the godly. We can consider for a second time verses 4 through 10. As I overlooked, both in the flood and in Sodom and Gomorrah, God's great work of salvation. See, God bringing his global flood in, in ancient times was, was uh, not indiscriminate in his judgment. He was precise in his judgment because he himself provided the means of salvation to Noah and anyone else who would get in that ark with him. God provided that ark as his, his, his way of salvation. And the whole world was then split into two. Those who would get into the ark and those who would not. And the Lord rescued the godly. Every soul in that ark was saved. God was glorified in his judgment of the wicked and his salvation through that own judgment for the godly. Or consider Lot, Lot who lived in such a wicked city, Lot who was compromised by the evil of living there. He had to make terrible decisions. And it was a terrible place to live. And he was not perfect. And yet God remembered Lot. God would not wipe away the righteous with the wicked. The Lord saved Lot despite all of what Lot had done. And, and note what Peter says about Lot as a marker of Lot's righteousness, that he was distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral. For as the righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Christian, do you feel distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral? Does your heart ache for the pain caused by the wickedness around us? Do you feel that the world is broken? Then take heart. Hold fast to Christ. He will not save you because you've worked so hard to get to him. No, no, he will save you because of what Jesus has done for you. Hold on to Jesus, even as Jesus is holding on to you. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial. As I, as I was thinking about this, that, that verse in verse 9, right? Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. I, I wanted him to not say godly, right? He rescues the humble from trials, rescues his people from trials. Why does he say godly? Because that feels... What if I'm not godly enough, right? But then I realize that, that Peter is highlighting a beautiful, beautiful aspect of the gospel that he's been highlighting the entire book. Part of our salvation is our sanctification. Chapter 1, verse 3, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and goodness. See, salvation doesn't merely equal justification. Salvation equals justification, sanctification, and glorification. It's kind of like a big words to be able to say something that's pretty simple. That is to say, hey, your justification is when you are counted righteous, declared righteous because Jesus' blood atoned for you. And you're counted in the, the, the courtroom of God. Hey, that person is righteous. But then your sanctification 
continues from there, where you actually become righteous. You actually become godly. That's part of the good news of the gospel, is that you're not left to live in the filth of uh, your, your heart. Instead, you are changed. You're able to actually become righteous. Your positional righteousness is static. That remains the same. Your positional righteousness, God's eyes always seeing you as uh, righteous. But your lived righteousness is growing. Part of God's good news for you is that he is in the business of transforming you to love the things that he loves and to hate the things that he hates. Part of God's good news for you is that you are no longer a dog who will inevitably return to his old vomit. No, your fundamental identity has changed, and your lived-out character is being changed day by day. You are no longer a dog but a child. You still sin, but then you repent. You still eat what you shouldn't, but then you return to the Lord's banquet table, the table of your adoptive father. God cares for the godly. He can make you godly. He cares for you, even you. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on this passage.